that I'm really happy to share with you all today. It is an interview with a really excellent trainer who I'm pleased to call a colleague, Ferdy Yao. And, you know, though I, I, I actually recorded this with Ferdy almost a year ago and then kind of took a hiatus with the podcast. And I just wanted to mention that since then, he has taken a job with Behavior Vets, which is a highly respected veterinary practice that specializes in behavioral medicine. And uh, yeah, I'm glad to be able to share this interview with you. Also wanted to mention that we are still doing free 30-minute private virtual sessions with all clients, new and old. We're offering one to anyone who is interested. If you have not taken us up on that offer yet, please do so. You can sign up at schoolforthedogs.com. Not sure how long we will be offering this promotion, but we feel it is something we can do during quarantine to help people who are either facing issues with their dogs having to do with the massive changes in lifestyle that we're all experiencing, or if you're just looking to learn a little bit more about training, maybe looking for some ideas of fun stuff that you can do with your dog, go ahead and sign up at schoolforthedogs.com. We are able to pay our trainers to offer these sessions thanks to our scholarship fund. So thank you to anyone who has already donated to the fund. You can learn more about it at schoolforthedogs.com fund. And right now we are putting together a mosaic in our studio while we're closed. It's being built by the artist Jim Power. Jim Power is the artist who has done all the mosaics on lampposts throughout the East Village for like three decades. And he is doing this for us. And if you donate $100 or more right now, we will thank you with a photo tile that will go in this unique mosaic. You can learn more about that at schoolforthedogs.com mosaic. And uh, I will link to it in the show notes as well. And lastly, if you're enjoying this podcast, please do leave a review, but also reach out and say hi to me. I would love to hear from you. <laughs> Not seeing a whole lot of people these days and uh, means a lot when I hear from listeners. When I see your names in my inbox, it is hugely positively reinforcing. So please reach out. Just say hello. Annie at schoolforthedogs.com. Okay, here is the episode. And now for something completely different. Hi, my name is Annie Grossman, and I'm a dog trainer. This podcast is brought to you by School for the Dogs, a Manhattan-based facility I own and operate along with some of the city's finest dog trainers. During this podcast, we'll be answering your questions, geeking out on animal behavior, discussing pet trends, and interviewing industry experts. Welcome to School for the Dogs podcast. So, Ferdy, can you please introduce yourself? 
I'm Ferdy Yao. I'm a professional dog trainer. I am the uh, owner, uh, founder of Sit and Wiggles Dog Training. It's based out of Riverdale in the Bronx. And uh, how long have you had that business? I've had that business for, let's see, about 10 years now. And I wasn't always doing it full-time. I think I've been doing it full-time for about seven years. So tell me about your education, I guess, before you became a full-time dog trainer. Because, well, you, you tell me. How did it all start out? Okay, well... What did you study in college? I'm curious. In, in college, I went to uh, University of Michigan, and I studied ecology and uh, resource management. So when I was in college, I took a whole bunch of animal behavior classes, and that's really all I wanted to do, was just sit in class and watch animal behavior. Oh, I feel jealous. I wish I'd ever thought to take yeah. animal behavior classes in Yeah, and always been very interested in studying animals. Was there a time when you were a kid where you realized, like, you know, that was a world that interested you? You know... I I think it was just when I was a kid, it was everything was always about animals. All every book I read was about animals. I remember one time. Uh, where, where did you grow up? Port Washington, Long Island. Yeah, I remember one time my my mom uh, actually uh, yelled at me for uh, reading too many animal books because every single one of my books was about animals. She's like, she wanted me to kind of branch out and read something else, something different. But hey, here it, it all worked out in the end. And were you particularly interested in like going to the zoo or were you interested in pets? Or When I graduated from school, I really didn't know what I wanted to do. And my first job out of college was as a naturalist with the Audubon Society. And this was out in Oyster Bay. So I was kind of the guy who would take the rehabilitated uh, raptors like red-tailed hawks and owls. And I'd go to schools and kind of give a presentation about, hey, this is a hawk and they have talons and this is what talons look like. They'll bring out snakes and so we would you were like the guy who you would have wanted to have come to your school I guess if you were a little kid with your head in the animal exactly exactly so uh you know I got my experience kind of handling animals then that's my first experience handling animals I guess and you know I did the education thing for a little while and then I became a zookeeper at the uh, Central Park Zoo wow yeah and that's actually where I started to learn how to train animals. You know, before that, you know, I grew up with dogs and cats, and I was always responsible for taking care of them, but I really didn't know what training was about until I actually got to the zoo. How do you become a zookeeper at the Central Park Zoo? Do they, well, a, do they put ads on Craigslist? <laughs> it is. It's a, it's, it's a tough industry to get into. It can be very competitive, actually. And right when I started, and this was back in 2002, this is when zoos were actually kind of making the transition to become a little bit more, as far as their keeper staff, to become more scientific and they started looking for zookeepers, hiring people with degrees in biology, zoology, you know, something related to animals. In the past, working at a zoo was just a lot of manual labor. I mean, you were really a poop shoveler, a professional poop shoveler. And uh, so you didn't really need to know a whole lot about animals, and uh, but you had to be, you know, physically fit to do it. So. A lot of the old-time zookeepers were just people who, um, a lot of them came from different types of industries. You know, some people were like accountants, and they decided, like, hey, I don't like this job, and they became a zookeeper. But uh, right when I got started, (laughs) I started as an intern first in the animal department at Central Park Zoo, and then worked my way up to become a zookeeper. So my actually, my my first full-time zookeeping job was at the Bronx Zoo. It's a much bigger zoo, obviously, so there were more positions that opened up there. I was there for about nine months and then moved back to the Central Park Zoo where I got my start. I just liked the smaller zoo, the family atmosphere over there. What is life like as a zookeeper? Well, what is your day like? Well, you, you come in, I usually get in early. So is there one zookeeper? Are there many zookeepers? There are many zookeepers and you, you're basically you're assigned to different areas of the zoo. So I was usually assigned to the polar area in the Central Park Zoo. Mm-hmm. So that included the penguins, the sea lions, the polar bears. Oh my god, the best part. Yeah, the harbor seals, river otters, then now they have snow leopards, but where they have snow leopards now is river otters uh, it really was you know I was in my mid-20s and I got when I went to work I got to play with sea lions and polar bears and you know uh, I couldn't really ask for anything more than that do you do you know about the the famous 
polar bear who had the stereotypy in the 90s? Yes, it? I Gus. Remember well, that is me about Gus. Gus and Ida. Is he still there? No, Gus has passed in 2013. But really, Gus, I didn't realize it at the time, but Gus was my first behavior case. Okay. And, and that's the one I'm talking about? Yes, okay, that the is the one, yeah. Stereotypy is maybe a word that we should define, but yes, you yes, go for it. So stereotypy is a uh, behavior that can be, it's related to anxiety, stress, and you see it in animals, especially in animals in captivity. So Gus's particular case was he was known for swimming laps in the pool or he could go for hours on end without stopping. And in some cases, stereotypical behaviors can become uh, very damaging to animals' well-being. And in this case for Gus, it was clearly an expression of his stress of being a very small animal exhibit in the middle of New York City. So, so sad and yet so interesting. And as a, it's one of those things like, I mean, I remember going to see him when I was a kid in Mm -hmm. the early 90s maybe, and it was was cool to see this Mm -hmm. big polar bear foot on the glass because he would do these laps and push his foot off the glass and it was like something to go see. Yes. And yet it was actually, I mean, now I know it was this animal who was suffering deeply for like many, many years. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it really was. And you didn't even have to go into the zoo to watch it. You could actually stand right outside of the zoo, outside the gates, and you could actually see uh, part of the polar bear window where he would swim up and he'd push off at the same exact spot. So he became quite famous as the neurotic or the depressed polar bear of New York City, which, you know, people kind of played with that because, uh, you know, people called New York was neurotic. So uh, so it kind of made sense that our polar bear was neurotic mm. as well. So that was really my first experience in working with a, a serious behavior case. And really, it wasn't until kind of later on in life as a professional dog trainer, I started to realize what an influence that experience had on me and how I approach a lot of my cases now when I'm working with my clients. But yeah, when I got into work, I would sometimes spend a whole hour preparing his exhibit just adding more enrichment, which are basically, think of uh, just puzzle toys. Toys for, uh, you know, things to keep the uh, animal engaged in their environment, try to stimulate natural behaviors like hunting, foraging, scavenging. So, you know, did a whole lot of trying to really challenge Gus's brain, really, to help reduce the pulling, because in one sense, he probably was extremely bored. In another sense, uh, we wanted to really improve his well-being because he saw that it, it wasn't healthy for him to just keep swimming laps over and over and over for hours. It could last for like four hours at times. Wow. Isn't it interesting how so much training just comes down to like giving animals something to to do? Yeah, it really is. You know, it's so much of it is trying to be proactive. And, you know, you hear people say, especially when I'm working with their dogs, their family dogs, they talk about how smart the dog is and how active and energetic the dog is. And then they expect the dog to kind of, you know, sit at home by himself uh, for 10 to 12 hours a day while they're at work and do nothing. And then they come back home and they're like, they, they complain about how the dog is just jumping all over him or too energetic. Mm-hmm. So really a whole lot about, you know, caring for an animal is trying to understand, you know, what makes them happy, you know, activities that can help make them happy and more content. Um, that just, can help. just yesterday, someone said to me, well, what kind of breed of dog is easiest to train? And I'm curious what you'd answer. I can tell you what I said. I said, I think, I generally think more in terms of the individual than the breed, but sort of, you know, generally speaking, we consider animals that were bred to work with humans to be smarter because they have, like, intelligence that's more attuned to ours, so sheep dogs, herding dogs, that kind of thing. But they might be more intelligent as we see intelligent, however, that does not necessarily make them good pets. Like yeah. A dog that is like a super vigilant, super smart, active brain dog mm-hmm. might not actually do well in New York City because like they're too vigilant to be out on the street and we're trying to hurt every taxi and they can't be in an apartment all day. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It's, uh, <laughs> you know, everybody wants that smart dog, but then if you have a very smart dog and a dog doesn't have anything constructive to do with its, <laughs> with its 
this time, usually they get themselves in trouble. They make their, so, they make their, make their own jobs. Yeah,、right? they make their own jobs exactly. So、uh, you know, really depending on your lifestyle, if you're somebody who is active and likes to do a lot of things with your dog, then yeah, go for it. Go for it. get that really smart herding dog if you want. You know, but also you know understand you know what kind of environment you're bringing that dog into.、Um, you might say like a a lazy basset hound or great dane is actually quote unquote smarter to live in a city apartment. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Yeah. They're more evolved to that environment. Yeah, exactly. I was just gonna say, yeah. Sometimes you're better off as far as having a pet in your home.、And、if you live a very busy life, you're better off having an older couch potato. You know, the one that you know just is kind of a, a maybe a goofball, maybe <laughs> you know. It's a different kind of intelligence. Yeah, it is. <laughs> you know, that they, they're content to just hang out with you. So,、yeah. how did you go from the polar bears to dogs? Was that a goal, or did it? You know. No, it wasn't. So when I was at the zoo, you know, I was working with the polar bears, learned how to train all the animals there, like sea lions and river otters. Were you doing clicker training? It was all reward-based training. It wasn't exact. We didn't use clickers. Were you training like? Husbandry type behavior. Yes, yeah, all of it was, especially working with the sea lions, where we would teach them present their rear flippers for voluntary blood draws. Right. So, for those who aren't familiar with training at zoos, I know that there are zoos where they do, you know, fun exhibits where they, you know, or、mm-hmm. sea park kind of stuff with the dolphins do tricks. But most of the training, from what I understand at zoos, is about teaching them to voluntarily be handled,、uh, make it easier to give. To take their blood, right? Yes, it is. You know, while at the Central Park Zoo, you could watch the sea lion shows, and it's kind of fun. You see them do tricks, but the really the priority behind the training programs is for the animal's health and well-being. That relationship you develop with the animal, you know, trainers, really good trainers, can tell early on if there's something that's bothering the animal, that they're not performing a certain behavior as well as they usually do. So really, it's more than just teaching. Do tricks. It's really teaching them how to kind of cooperate in their own care, so that we can take a good close look at them, look at the flippers, look at the body condition.、Uh, with the bears, we could trim their nails, for example. We train them to put their、um, paws onto the bars of the cage. When we train the polar bears, it's through protected contact, so we're not in there with the bears. We're actually protected by、uh, basically the cage, and、uh, but they could present their paws up onto the the bars of the cage, and then we could clip their nails、uh, safely. Without having to have the vets come in, restrain them, or anything like that. So yeah, that's where a lot of the training at the zoo was done. All reward-based, positive, you know, reinforcement training. And then、uh, you know how I became a dog trainer. Really, was it wasn't my immediate goal when I was at the zoo. I went back to grad school. I went to Columbia to、uh, get a master's in conservation biology. And after I went to grad school, did studied animal behavior a little bit more. And when I left grad school, I got a job as a biologist with New York City Parks. But when I was working as a biologist, you know, I also kind of. Missed working with animals. That 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 interaction, that direct contact with animals that I had at the zoo, I really missed it. So I decided to start teaching, do some dog training, and I started working with Biscuits and Bath, which is a doggy daycare here in New York City, and、uh, met a lot of bunch of other really great trainers there that you know we consider <laughs> our colleagues and our friends now. So you know I was working as a biologist for New York City, and I was moonlighting as a dog trainer part time for about a year or two. And then after that, I left Biscuits and Bath and started Sits and Wiggles.、Um, again, still doing it part time. I was still working full time as a、uh, biologist, and I didn't switch full time until 2012. And then that's when I decided that what I really, really loved doing more than anything else was training animals. And while I felt really like、uh, wildlife conservation was still a big part of me, and I really didn't want to leave that field, but I just felt that going to dog training business was kind of the right step for me at that point. And then, lucky enough, I was a year,、uh, really a year later,、uh, hooked up with the Gotham Coyote Project, and now I am back.、Uh, I'm studying the、uh, coyotes in New York City. My dog is a trained、uh, coyote scat detection dog. Yeah. So how did you get involved with? First of all, I mean. 
until I knew that you were doing this, uh -huh. I didn't know that there were coyotes in New York City. Are there coyotes in Manhattan? There are, uh, are there coyotes on my street? <laughs> yeah. There are sometimes coyotes coming to Manhattan, and it's usually in the winter or early spring. But, you know, really in Manhattan itself, there are probably not enough of green spaces right. for them so to where, live in where where is your work primarily? So our, our work is primarily in the Bronx, okay. where we have a little bit more space. And despite the reputation that the Bronx has, there are actually very large parks in the Bronx, so very large green spaces in the Bronx. And that's where we're studying the coyotes. They're coming down from Westchester in Connecticut, and we have uh, probably about five resident packs in the Bronx right now. How many are in a pack? We estimate, you know, can be, uh, depends on the season. Like right now, this is the pupping season. So the packs are larger right now. The pups haven't really left the packs yet until later in the year. So at this time, a coyote mother can have anywhere between three to seven pups. And is a, is a pack just one family like yes, that? Yeah, it's, okay. a, it's one family. So this time of year, if the conditions are right, you can have seven pups or more. So that pack can be very, very big at this point of time but you know usually we consider about five or six individuals to a pack at least adults so the estimate that we're going with right now are maybe 30 or 40 individual coyotes in New York City total but most of them are living in the Bronx and is it okay that they're there? Are you trying to get them to not be there? Are you trying to make their lives better? Like, what is the mission? Well, the mission really is to study how they're surviving here in New York City and then also to educate and learn how we can coexist with coyotes. The fact of the matter is they're living here and they've been here for several years, actually, and they're here to stay. What we know about coyotes and, you know, just in general in coyotes and across the country, we've been trying to get rid of coyotes for over 100 years. Um, farmers, hunters have been, you know, trying to kill coyotes for a very long time. And coyotes are so adaptable that basically their response to the hunting and the really, to the really targeted, you know, persecution is to, they have expanded their range and diversified their niche. So that's really one of the most fascinating things about coyotes. Coyotes first were living out in the West in open uh, habitats like grasslands and prairies. And now over here in the East, they are inhabiting deciduous forests and they are living in urban areas as well. And along the way, uh, as they had migrated from the West to the Northeast here, they had hybridized with wolves and domestic dogs. So uh, that's one of the interesting things about uh, the coyotes here in our area is that genetically speaking, they aren't identical to the Western coyote. Here they are about, as far as what we know about them, are they're about 65% coyote, 25% wolf. <laughs> and 10% domestic dogs. So uh, yeah, they're, they're mutts here. The coyotes are mutts here. And sometimes you might hear them referred to as koi wolves or koi dogs, which I think is the media's way of kind of sensationalizing what they're here, you know, uh, the animal. But yeah, they're, they're coyotes. They're a little larger than their Western cousins. And they can live in forests as, and live very close to humans as well. But they're here to stay, really. What do they live off of in, in the Bronx? So they, we, we're finding they're eating birds, lots of birds, usually pigeons. We're finding a lot of pigeons. In I always wondered where the dead pigeons are in New York City. <laughs> yeah, maybe the coyotes are cleaning them up. Do you know? Up. Seriously, there's so many pigeons, but you, you rarely yeah, see a dead they, pigeon. They, they go away. <laughs> they, <laughs> they just go away? Maybe they, they find a quiet place to <laughs> go, go Their pigeon away. retirement home? Yeah. But yeah, the coyotes here in New York City are eating, uh, we're finding lots of birds, rodents, rabbits, some of them in the, the Bronx where they can get access to it are eating deer as well. Most of them are probably eating roadkill where we haven't seen a lot of evidence of coyotes actually hunting adult deer as of yet. They could probably capture younger deer like fawns, but uh, adult deer are probably still a little too big for coyotes to take down. Um, there And in places where they're living closer to, in more urban areas, we're finding that there's a higher percentage of anthropogenic sources of food. So they're eating basically leftovers, uh, trash. So one of the things that's part of our project is understanding 
what these risks are and how people can safely manage their trash, basically, to avoid attracting coyotes to their neighborhood and where they live. Do they present a danger to people who have, like, small dogs in their yard? Yeah, you know, coyotes are always going to be a danger to small dogs and, and cats. So, you know, obviously in Manhattan, you know, people aren't, <laughs> don't really have backyards, so you're not really, really worrying about it. In the Bronx, there's some neighborhoods like in Riverdale where some people have houses with yards where you want to be more aware about that situation. Mm-hmm. But yeah, coyotes, they can look at dogs as competitors mm-hmm. or they can look at dogs as food as well. So what is your your work there involved? So it involves camera trapping. So we put these uh, wildlife cameras into the parks so we can monitor the coyotes. The cameras are heat and motion sensor cameras and they're hidden in the parks. So anytime any warm-blooded animal walks in front of the camera, it takes a picture, snaps a picture. So we can detect the presence of coyotes there and we can also see, if we're lucky, see evidence of breeding and that takes kind of a little bit of luck and a little bit of skill of understanding where you think a coyote might den, uh, put their den up. And the other part of our studies are collecting scat, which is coyote feces. And my dog is uh, trained to sniff it out in the woods so we can collect it for genetic studies and for diet studies. So we can figure out what they're eating and also who's related to whom in the among the parks and try to figure out how many different individuals there are, there are out there. So interesting. Yeah. So how did you train your dog to be a, a coyote scat smelling dog <laughs> and does it come in useful in other situations? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well really it's a job that dogs have been bred to do for a long time which is using their nose. We have here in New York City we have dogs that are bed bug detection dogs. Right. Mm-hmm. So my dog can, at first I started teaching my dog how to detect how to sniff out a scent inside boxes, Mm -hmm. inside little containers. And then once she started to get that idea of how to you know, find something for me. Then really what I started to do was I had uh, coyote scat samples, which I obtained from the Queen Zoo. Um, the Queen Zoo does have coyotes in captivity. So we were able to get some samples from the Queen Zoo. And what I did was I hid the food and the scat inside the box. And my dog was already trained to find the food. So at this point, what I was doing was I was associating the scent of food along with the scent of the coyote scat. And I gradually faded the scent of food out. So basically my dog started to recognize that whenever she smelled the scent of coyote scat and she found it for me, she would be rewarded with a game of tug or she'd be rewarded with uh, one of her favorite treats. And then uh, we started training the dog out in the fields, out in the woods. And you know, once that went well, then we were collecting real wild coyote scat. So and she's been doing really well with it. So what's her signal when she spots coyote scat? Does she... she will make very distinct eye contact with me and then she'll sit down by the scat. So when we study more about the, when we learn more about the coyote, what they're, how they're surviving here in New York City, we have a better idea of how to avoid conflicts with humans. And what we're learning so far are that coyotes are really trying to do as much as they can to avoid humans, which is great. So for one thing, Coyotes in more natural settings, they have a crepuscular activity pattern. So in other words, they're usually most active at dawn or dusk. In urban areas, coyotes here in New York City, as they do in uh, other urban areas like Chicago and San Francisco, LA, they have shifted their activity patterns to, to become more nocturnal. And we believe, as it's consistent with other cities across the US, we believe that this is a behavior to avoid humans. And when coyotes can, they are staying in green spaces and green areas. So they're really staying well hidden in these parks. And they're not really hanging out in your neighborhood around mm-hmm. the corner. They're really, uh, you know, just trying to stay deeper in the parks. One of the reasons why you don't see a lot of coyotes in Manhattan is number one, it's an island. So just that fact alone makes it harder for coyotes to actually get to Manhattan because they have to cross a bridge, they have to swim, take the subway, they have to take (laughs) a tunnel. We still don't really know for sure how they're getting to Manhattan, but they're probably, uh, you know, there are a couple areas where Mm -hmm. we think they're moving, they're crossing over, like like maybe by railroad on uh, down near Inwood Hill Park Mm -hmm. up in northern Manhattan. 
or the Broadway Bridge, it's a short crossing there. But in Manhattan, uh, other than Central Park, there aren't really a lot of green, big green spaces sure. for them to really hide out. So you may find coyotes occasionally in Manhattan, but I think uh, what happens with the coyotes is that they quickly find out that, you know, this place is a little too intense to live or to even set up a family. So most of the coyotes, once they get to Manhattan, they're probably looking for a way out. And sometimes they find a way out and other times they find a way into more human uh, dominated neighborhoods. And that's where we have to go in and try to catch them. The Parks Department will do that and try to catch them and get them out of Manhattan. Are there other local wild animals that are that you've studied or that are interesting to you? Uh, you know, just the fact that we're, you know, we're studying coyotes, we, we start studying their interactions with other animals like skunks and raccoons. Mm -hmm. So, you know, one thing we're finding out is that they become very territorial around breeding season. So when we place a camera trap up near a coyote den and during breeding season, what you find are that all the skunks, coyotes, and the, po uh, not coyotes, the raccoons and the possums all kind of they leave the area, um, and uh, they've adapted too. Yeah, to, they to either, the coyote family. They even learn to avoid coyotes, or the coyotes are actively, you know, chasing them out. And then after the breeding season's over, and the pups have grown up, and they are not, you know, just hanging around the den as much, and they're more mobile, then you see all the other animals come back. So that's kind of fascinating. That also tells us a little bit more about, you know, how humans should avoid coyote dens. That we understand that coyotes are more territorial around breeding season which mm -hmm. makes sense you know they want to protect their young and we actually had a case up in Riverdale where a coyote family decided to have their den right in a private community um, near some homes they chased a man walking his dog out and then coyotes were actually seen kind of hanging out on people's porches uh, around their homes and this obviously can be very frightening for people with especially if they have small children mm -hmm. and one of the great things was that we already had established a good relationship with the community because we knew the coyotes were in the area we had put cameras up there already so since we knew that because of our camera work, we saw that, oh, there are pups here, there's a den here. So we knew that increase in aggressive behavior in where the coyote chased a, a dog walker and, and his dog out. We knew that it wasn't because the coyote was all of a sudden becoming aggressive. It was because the dog has gotten too close to their den. Mm -hmm. And uh, what we advised the community to do was basically is just stay away from this area for the mm -hmm. next four weeks. And after about four weeks, what we found were the pups grew up and they became more mobile. And once they became more mobile, they were able to leave the den and the parents took them out of there. So we didn't have any other negative incidents after that. Once we told people just, you know, leave the coyotes alone for a few weeks and we put up a camera there. So we were able to watch the uh, pups behaving like really like puppies, almost like puppy dogs. So we got a lot of information about coyote behavior early on. You did, um, and you did some people training. Yeah, and we did some people training. So was there was, something that I, did I remember the Trump golf course? Yes, uh, so uh, last year we had some uh, coyotes at the Trump golf course, which is over at the Ferry Point Park, which is right at the base of the Whitestone Bridge over the, in the Bronx. And what was going on was, this was in the fall, the coyotes, um, it was really more of the uh, the pups. And now at this point, they weren't really pups anymore. They were becoming adolescent <laughs> coyotes. And they were chasing the lawnmowers. They were jumping on golf carts. They were kind of, you know, becoming a little bit more bold and hanging around the groundskeepers and even the golfers. So that became a problem, became a little scary. So we went out there, Gotham Coyote went out there. We kind of rotated ships and we would go out to the golf course early in the morning at five in the morning and really at the crack of dawn to watch these coyotes. And one of the interesting things that we found were we could consistently see the adult male, but we couldn't find the adult female. Mm 
and we believe that something happened to the adult female of that pack. So basically, we don't think mom, something happened to mom. Maybe, you know, she could have gotten hit by a car. We don't know, but usually cars are the uh, largest source of mortality for coyotes, urban coyotes. In a normal coyote family, what would happen is, you know, one adult would probably go out or some of the older siblings and the adults would go out and go hunting while one of the other parents would probably stay in the den and watch the pups and keep them close to the den, keep them out of trouble. But since the adult female mom was missing, it was on dad to take care of the pups and go out and hunt. And what we found was we found a sub-adult male who was always with the younger pups. So we think this was probably a older sibling that became a babysitter. But the, you know, didn't do as good a job as mom. So these young pups, as pups do, were very curious about, you know, golf carts and lawnmowers. And <laughs> they, they were causing a little trouble. So once we went out there and we were observing and watching the coyotes, their behavior changed because we found that the coyotes responded differently to people who were trying to just go about their day and do their jobs. Like if you're a groundskeeper, you're just mowing the lawn or something. You're not, you know, you might watch where the coyotes are, but you're trying to do your job. But as opposed to if you had a whole bunch of researchers out there with binoculars and standing on top of um, the hills in the, uh, in the golf course, uh, we were standing on top of hills so that we could get a better perspective. And uh, when the coyotes noticed that there were humans actually watching them, directly watching them, they behaved differently and their behavior changed within a few weeks. And within a few weeks, that the behavior of jumping off golf carts and chasing the lawnmowers, that stopped. Wow. Um, just yeah. like the police activity. Yeah, it was just like, hey, uh-oh, you know, there's, there's these large primates watching us, you know? Huh. And then they... Like, isn't it like quantum physics or whatever? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think these they, they know when, you know, huh. there's another animal watching them. Scarecrows. And... You needed like scarecrows. <laughs> yeah, I think to... we need something like that and what they told us the golf course staff they told us that after we were watching them for a few weeks that all that behavior stopped and they went back to business as normal the coyotes went back to kind of leaving <laughs> the humans alone so we're gonna see this year we don't know right now as of right now we haven't checked the cameras yet we don't know whether they have a new family out there yet mm -hmm. we don't know whether the adult male found a new mate to have you know another family so uh, we'll, we'll see if people want to get involved is there anything that volunteers can do? GothamCoyote.com. They can read more about the project there. And right now, if you're interested in volunteering, there's some information on the webpage where they can contact one of the uh, founders of the Gotham Coyote Project. We're not yet set up as a nonprofit organization yet, so we haven't really gotten to the point yet. We're handling, you know, volunteer projects, but it is a fascinating place. It's a good place to start if you're interested and, you know, you're welcome to um, learn more about it there. Do you feel like you train dogs because they are the animal most in need of training as opposed to... I mean, in the environment in which you live, as opposed to a particular affinity towards dogs? Well, yes. Yeah, I, I mean, think so. I, I, I mean, you know, I think uh, training dogs, I mean, number one, I love dogs. And yeah, it is. It's one that uh, most people need to be trained at this point. So it's the one that helps me pay the bills. That's for, <laughs> for sure. And the one that's actually, you know, most in demand. Uh, I know people do, you know, want to train their cats, but uh, you don't get as much of a demand for cat training as you Well, I feel training. like most people don't think about cat training until there's like a major problem yeah or exactly. dog training is a little bit more like a routine thing people get a dog and they think they need training or, mm -hmm. yeah yeah which is a good you know, thing I think yeah it is a good thing I mean you know really realistically like you know these are animals that are you know not not that far removed from uh those uh, wild coyotes that are living out here. Right. And uh, really, they have sharp teeth and they're living with our families, with our children, with our neighbors and friends. So I think it's very important that we uh, have well-behaved dogs so that our, our communities are safer. What do you do when you encounter people who are hanging on to dominance theory or the notion that you need to have like a special energy in order to oh dog. I mean, how do you respond as someone who has this zoo background yeah that's a that's a great question because there is that 
attitude that kind of the the bigger and the more aggressive the dog, the more forceful you, that you have to be with the animal. And I come from a perspective where I worked with polar bears and I worked with a, one of my favorite animals I've worked with was a 300-pound female sea lion named Scooter. And here's an animal that they live in groups as well. They live in social groups, um, just like dogs. So if you, you know, want to talk about, you know, that dogs are social animals and you have to show dominance, well, here's a sea lion. And uh, sometimes, you know, my response can vary from, you know, you think you're a tough guy? Go ahead and show a sea lion, you know, who's dominant and who's the boss. You're not going to get very far. But, you know, really, for the most part, when, I, when I'm talking to people, I think um, people just have an idea about the dominance idea because that's what's out there. That's what's on the internet. That's what they see on TV. And they're really just misinformed. Right. And really, I feel most people I've worked with are deep down inside. They, they actually don't want to scare and, and intimidate or hurt their own pet dog. And they do it because, you know, either they've seen it on TV or on or they read it on the internet or they've hired a trainer who told them that this is how you're supposed to train dogs. And what strikes me is that when I was training animals at the zoo, we train every single species in the zoo with reward-based training, with positive reinforcement. We we never use force on those animals. I mean, you can't. You can't. You I mean, can't. you I mean, I guess you could force a polar bear to give you his paw for nail clipping but you would need like oh yeah you're <laughs> not going to you're not going to get very far with that animal yeah you know i was i was give the example of this sea lion you know i'm working with scooter she weighs 300 pounds there is no you know, physically, there's no way I can overpower that animal. So when you're working with animals like that, you learn very quickly, okay? Especially animals that can hurt you, okay? Or even kill you, that you learn very quickly mm. how to gain their trust and not use forceful training methods that can damage that trust, that can make them respond with defensive aggression towards you or to someone else. So you learn very quickly how to really use positive reinforcement because you need to have that trust so the animal yeah. wants to cooperate with you. Because if, if, if Scooter didn't want to work with me, she could just jump in the pool and swim and just leave and just ignore me. But what she did was she chose to work with me because we had such a good relationship. She even chose to work with me when we did things like getting back to the husbandry work. We had to give her eye drops every single day, and usually twice a day. And, you know, how do you give eye drops to a pet dog? And most people are, you know, if your dog has an eye infection, you have to restrain your dog and hold your dog down and then put the eye drops in. So with Scooter, we had trained her to rest her head onto my hand, I'd make a fist, and she just rests her head right onto my fist. And uh, so basically it's targeting, and she will hold her head there. And then I would um, very easily just drop eye drops into her eye. Um, I'd wait for her to open her eye. And when she did, I'd put an eye drop in. And then she was rewarded with a uh, herring, which was her favorite type of fish. And that's what she worked for. There was no restraint there. She did it all cooperatively. And uh, so, you know, when I, I show this example to people and I show them that, you know, we train all these other animals with positive reinforcement, but for some reason, when we go to dogs, it's slap a choke chain or mm -hmm. a prong collar or even worse, a shock collar on them and just start jerking them around or force them to do this and force them to do that. And, you know, it just it I think it's doesn't just make any sense. They are so adaptable that they, like, let us do that. Yeah, you know? and that's, that's you know, and just because a dog is so docile and, and sweet and submissive um, doesn't mean it's okay, right. you know. And, you know, while you might get away with it, you know, there might be a time where you're going to have a dog that's not going to be or as submissive or yeah. as, as docile. And they may Fine, actually, yeah. yeah, they may actually respond with defensive aggression if you try to force them to do something they don't want. So it really is. I, I try to, you know, really, I try to inspire people to, to find a better way. Um, I, I get so frustrated with, you know, like watching someone like Caesar Milan, who's telling people, you know, it's all about your energy, because it's like, how do you make someone change their energy? Because like, it's so subjective, yeah. you know, like what one person's energy, you know, and, and I've, I did some training with chickens a few years ago. Mm -hmm. and oh, yeah. Like teaching them uh, like color differentiation or shape differentiation. Oh, cool, yeah. 
and you know, I don't think that chicken gave a shit about my energy. <laughs> you know, like, the chicken just wanted to know where, mm-hmm. where, where she needed a peck. And uh, yet somehow with dogs, we get all wrapped up with this notion of like, there's some special quality in me that's going to color the situation. Yeah. And that's really, that's what gets people in trouble where you start thinking that you have this special energy that all animals love you or all dogs love you. You're going to get yourself in trouble there. And that's, I try to really preach this science and that how the science works. And I, you know, just knowing from experience because I've worked with so many different species. I know that, yeah, you can train any animal with this science. And isn't it amazing how surprised people are by that? Like, yeah. oh, I remember when I was going to go do chicken training, I said to someone I know who is like an incredibly intelligent person mm-hmm. that I was going to go train chickens. And she was like, but you're a dog trainer. It's like, yes, but something, you know, dog trainers do sort of for fun to, uh-huh. to you know, hone their chops. And she was like, oh, so chickens and dogs learn in the same way. And I was like... Oh my God, of course they learn in the same way. Like, yeah. I can't believe this is news <laughs> to you. But but I think, you know, it probably would have been news to me mm-hmm. before I... Yeah, absolutely. Was it the uh, the Bob Bailey chicken camp? It was, was it... yeah, it was with Parveen Farnoody. Par- who, yeah, Parveen. Who, uh, was a, or is a student of Bob Bailey. Yeah, yes. And, yeah. Uh, and then Bob Bailey, who worked with... Breland Bailey, and yeah, students exactly. of B.F. Skinner's. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's, yes. It was really excellent. I think anyone who has a chance to, to do that should should do it. Yeah, I... It was, it was a five-week program, and you could do, like, one week, uh-huh. or you could do five, and I did one week, and I would have done five in a heartbeat. Mm-hmm. It is. It's so fascinating. I, I always tell people, especially uh, young, new trainers, not, not they're not always young. <laughs> new trainers can come from uh, all walks of life at any age. But I always tell new trainers who, if you want to become a better dog trainer, train a different species. Mm-hmm. Because I think one of the great terms I've gotten from uh, Susan Friedman, Dr. Susan, Susan mm-hmm. Friedman, is the our cultural fog about dogs. <gasps> all these misconceptions. Static. And, yeah. Some myths that we think about dogs, about being the alpha and being dominant that gets in the way of how we actually train dogs so I, I'll tell people go train a cat you know especially if they're volunteering at my shelter and they're interested in training I will tell them I will go over there and teach them how to train cats because now you can't think of all those things of oh yeah. you know show dominance to the dog you try to show a cat dominance that cat isn't going to work with you we're going to gerbil uh, yeah, yeah, a gerbil, <laughs> a bird, anything, really. I, I think it would be cool to get, like, a really long target stick, a big umbrella or something, and try and, like, do target training with the rats in the subway. I've always thought oh, that my God, that would be, that would you be need a to, like, fascinating experiment. You'd have to, like, oh. tag the rat somehow or, like, uh-huh. or get really good identifying which rat <laughs> yeah. is. It's like, you know, you get, like, a paint gun and, or something. Something like that, yeah. Um, yeah, you know, that's, uh, you have, I actually know people, biologists who are studying New York City rats, so oh, they I'm might be so, interested in some of those so ideas. I'm so interested in that. <laughs> Is there a favorite kind of case that you like to take on as a dog trainer? I always like those cases where a dog is maybe suffering from anxiety related to just you know, fear of, of the environment, fear of people. I really love it when I see animals kind of recover from that. Or at least improve because you know it's not you can't always cure every behavior problem and i think that's also related to my experience with, with the polar bears with gus because uh, you know i saw an animal that was suffering all the time that i that's you know my goal when i was working with him was just to make his day as better <laughs> did you he know. end up going on medication when i was working there i think before my time before i started there i think he was on medication briefly and i don't know if this is official or not but anecdotally i think people thought that it was written that gus may have been the first zoo animal that was ever put on behavior medications i don't know if that's officially true but that has been kind of put out there but when i was working at the zoo gus was not on any behavior medications anymore and when we started there you know his pacing was pretty intense once he started uh, doing his uh, his pacing in the pool you know for the most part uh, you couldn't 
break him out of it. You could, you know, we, you could try to call him to come inside into our holding rooms, but he wouldn't come in because he was just kind of in a trance, really, yeah. in that moment. And what we did, it was uh, you know, mainly another keeper named Celia Ackerman and myself. We were in the bear dens the most during that period of time between 2002 and 2005. We started to become a lot more creative with the types of enrichment and toys that we gave him. You know, a lot of times we used to just give him kind of new objects, mm. new toys mm. in there. But now what we started doing was we started giving him puzzles. So for example, we had this huge plastic, it looked like a big plastic uh, ice flow basically. And we cut holes in it and then we hid toys inside. Inside those toys, we hid food maybe. Mm. So it was like- um, Just like working with dogs. Just like working with dogs. Yeah, we put a puzzle inside a puzzle inside a puzzle. You're like kind of like those little Russian dolls yeah. that you open up. I've had, I've had cases, I think I've talked about this before on the podcast where like somebody's come in and wanted to hire me to come work with their dog and I'll be standing in the shop and I'll be like, okay, like you could do, you know, we could do some training sessions and it's going to cost you, you know, this many hundreds of dollars or like you could buy this toy, this toy and this toy, mm -hmm. which will cost you $50. Yeah. Yes. And yeah. I think you're going to go farther with these $50 worth of toys than you are with like a professional trainer sitting there with you because mm -hmm. so much of, you know, what we think of, of training can be solved by, mm -hmm. you know, you know, just giving a dog's brain something to do. Yeah, yeah, it really is. There's so many parallels mm -hmm. with that. Just uh, when you have an animal that's more content, mm -hmm. they, you know, because they're physically and mentally fulfilled yeah. with, you know, activity and training and brain exercises, you know, a lot of those behavior issues go away. Yeah. So yeah, when we started doing that, we started upping the challenge for mm -hmm. him, basically. We also made a more concerted effort in our training uh, sessions with him to work on a lot of these husbandry behaviors, like teaching him to, to do those uh, nail clippings, mm -hmm. to uh, present his rear up to the cage so that we can give him a voluntary injection mm -hmm. instead of having a vet come in and have mm -hmm. to dart him. Mm -hmm. So we tried to see what we could do. We looked at his everyday life and we tried to figure out what can we do as, as his caretaker to reduce his overall daily stress. Um, Here's another question yeah. that I'm, I'm curious your take on carriage horses. Mm -hmm. Good carriage horses in New York oh. City. Are, I, I used to be, before I knew anything about training and thought very much about animals, mm -hmm. I thought, you know, let's, let's have more carriage horses rather than fewer carriage horses because, you know, it's better for the environment to mm, <laughs> travel by horse yeah, and, yeah. and, you know, let's, I don't know. My, my thought was, you know, cool, cool, old-timey thing, mm -hmm. I'm all for it. And I, I like animals, and it's more animals around. Then I, then I started, when I started to, you know, get into animal training and sort of think more about how animals are living in a human environment, I thought, you know, no horses. We shouldn't have any horses in New York City because of the cars. It's just not mm -hmm. safe. It's not dangerous. It's not a natural environment. And then I kind of, I guess, began to think, well, maybe it's a good thing for horses to have something to do, and we are giving them jobs, and they, mm -hmm. we, we've bred them to have jobs. And uh, anyway, curious yeah. your thought. <laughs> yeah, I think um, I actually am on the side of I don't think we should have the carriage horses. I am not so sure. And, you know, this is saying I don't really know that much about horses. You know, I work with lots of species, but I actually never worked with horses. But I don't know if that environment's the best environment for That's them. That's kind of, I think, where I am now. Yeah. Too, I was thinking uh, that it, it, maybe horses do need something to do, but maybe the Central Park exactly. is, is I think, not the place for it. Yeah, I think, you know, uh, if we, we ask those horses, you know, yeah, they, they probably like enjoy doing some work, but I'm not sure if, uh, you know, pulling a tourist through Central Park you know, every day is going to be their choice of what mm -hmm. they actually want to do. So I think we could definitely provide a better environment for those horses. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I worry about them with the cars. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. You know, it's just so loud there. And, you know, and every once in a while you hear about a horse that escapes or, you know, something yeah. happens to the horse. I mean, it's rare, you know, and I've seen a lot of the handlers there. You know, generally speaking, most of the handlers I watch, you know, seem to be really kind to the mm -hmm. horses. But again, I think this is one of these old, yeah, like these old timey things that it's just hard for yeah. people to let go. And it's more of a, it's kind of, 
it's a little, yeah, it's a little selfish because it's, are we really doing what's right for the animal or are we just doing it because we think it's cool uh, to have horses and, you know, to sit in a horse carriage that pull you if, through Central Park? Yeah. If, if we could get rid of all the cars and only have horses. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. we could like horseback ride to work. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, love there could that. be bike lanes and horse, mm -hmm. horse lanes. <laughs> great. Anything else that we haven't touched on that you think we should we should cover? I don't think I can really think of much right now. Um, you want to went over a lot. Yeah. Try and answer that question. Yeah, let's I go answer some questions. Edited or not? All right. Hi, Annie. I just ran across your podcast today. My name is Dee. I really enjoyed this episode, and I'm looking forward to listening to a bunch of them. Currently, we have two pit bull mixes. One is very brilliant and listens good and learns quick. The other one is um, challenging. He is very cat-like in the fact that he likes to chase shadows and lights and, you know, shiny things and it's very odd. I have no experience with this kind of behavior and despite our best efforts, we have not been able to break him of this habit. He'll run outside, see a shadow on the fence and bark at it and bark at it and bark at it. And then also when our lights are on in the kitchen and they're reflecting on the vents, he wants to go bark at the light. So if you could address this or if you have something that addresses this, we'd really appreciate it. Thank you. Okay. Any ideas for D here? Interesting. If we were talking about intelligence and she mm -hmm. says one of her dogs is smart and the other one's not. Mm -hmm. And it's the one that she says is not smart that's having the issues. But mm -hmm. Yeah. Might that, be another intelligence. Yes. I think it's a, that's an interesting case. And I think... With, when I hear something like that, that's not behavior that's typical of most dogs chasing shadows and lights like that. I, you know, one of my first questions would be, how how intense is the behavior? How frequent does it occur? And depending on that answer, you know, that's something I might may I think she may need to see a veterinary behaviorist. And uh, I know you know what a behaviorist is, but just for the listeners out there, a veterinary behaviorist is sort of a uh, veterinary psychiatrist. So some animals, and this is related to Augusta polar bear, they get into a behavior that's a little OCD, like swimming laps in the pool over and over for hours. And chasing lights and shadows is another type of behavior that can be a symptom of anxiety or stress in the animal so that would be something you know first I'd love to get a video of that and mm -hmm. see you know what exactly is going on there how intense it is I'd like to know how frequently it happens you know during a day is this once a day is this only a couple times a week is this happening like several times a day and I'd like to get a good idea of the animals overall daily activity you know, how much exercise are they getting? How much training are they getting? And, you know, sometimes these lines, like with Gus, it wasn't about trying to stop him from pacing once he was in the pacing uh, mode. It was really trying to be proactive and prevent it from happening in the first place. Right. Yeah. It's like getting a bigger picture of, yeah. of what's going on. That's why it's so hard to just look at one specific behavior mm -hmm. like when somebody says I only want to work on the fact that my dog is peeing on the couch well like <laughs> we can't really do that yeah it doesn't it's not you know it doesn't happen in a vacuum so I'm sure this behavior isn't happening in a vacuum I'm sure there's you know there's more to it and we would need to see you know is this dog getting enough exercise and mental stimulation and you know so there's a training part of it I was just trying to teach a dog to have a better response to lights and shadows to a more more appropriate response that we can train uh, from the human end but also yeah you know I think what's more important here is this dog does this dog have a constructive outlet for its energy so if we're talking about like a dog that's very very energetic and very smart okay and I tend to find it the smarter the animal the more behavior problems they, they tend mm -hmm, to have mm -hmm. because uh, smarter animals tend to notice more stuff right like okay? I was saying it's, it's, the, it's the vigilant dog yeah right? it is yeah and the ones that aren't <laughs> as as observant or you know I don't know what you want to call it call it intelligence you know if you want to call it that you know sometimes they, they may miss you know 
oh, there's that shadow. Isn't it that's... the same thing with people? It's like the neurotic people who are very intelligent and yeah, unhappy. You know it's all the, the little Woody details. Who are... Exactly. Really, <laughs> really. Like the, the less observant people who exist happily in it, the world. It just goes to show you how we're all so connected, how, mm-hmm. you know, as different as we are as animals, we are so similar. And that's one of the biggest things I've learned from just working with all these different animals that, you know, when it comes down to it, so much, we are all so similar. But yeah, you know, in that situation, if training itself doesn't work, then you, I would seriously consider behavior medications to help Mm -hmm. complement the training. It's not a substitute for the training, but it's to, you know, if it's sometimes in some cases, the dog's uh, stress level is so high and it's triggering this light chasing or shadow chasing behavior that your training may not be very effective because the animal is already so stressed. So that's where behavior medications can kind of come in to help you open up a window into the animal's brain so that you can start to kind of teach the animal a a more appropriate response to the shadows and lights and help reduce whatever anxiety that animal is feeling, you know, associated with it. So that's a very, very interesting (laughs) behavior case. So I think that's something that you would definitely need to see a professional trainer. It's funny how we trainers refer to cases that are like behavior cases where Mm -hmm. I I resisted at School for the Dogs calling certain behavior certain cases behavior cases for a really long time because i was like it's all behavior yeah yeah it is you're teaching sit that's a behavior Mm -hmm. but in the parlance of of training we we, when things are issues we tend to call them behavior cases yeah it is we try to make a distinction between oh are we just training a dog that just needs to learn how to sit lie down and stay you know it's the good manners training or uh you know it was called obedience training right versus, um, versus you know this is probably involves a little bit more about emotions in the animal how the animals you know dealing with stress in its daily life it's really more like problem training yeah but I problem guess, like, solving. behavior yep. is like it's a word like a when you use a nice word instead of um uh euphemism, euphemism. yeah <laughs> yes yes yeah. behavior is like a euphemism for, for yeah for, issues for issues yes <laughs> like reactivity is yeah. a euphemism for uh-huh. aggression or well ferdy thank you so much i think this has been really interesting well, thank you and this i'm is excited a, to, yeah, it's a pleasure to share all this down. with everyone all right thank you thanks so much for listening You can support School for the Dogs podcast by subscribing, leaving a five-star review, telling your friends, and shopping in our online store. Learn more about School for the Dogs and sign up for lots of free training resources on our website, schoolforthedogs.com. And hey, do you like stickers? You can get $10 to make any kind of stickers you want at stickermule.com when you sign up at schoolforthedogs.com slash stickers.